listening to the Forefront Church Podcast in New York City, where our vision is to see lives, neighborhoods, and our city renewed through Jesus. Good morning. I am Jen Fisher. I'm the associate pastor here at Forefront Brooklyn. So I want to start out this morning by telling you a little bit about my heritage. Have any of you heard of the legend of Johnny Appleseed? He's like this tall tale, hero, folktale kind of guy. Well, he was also this American pioneer hippie who wore a, a pot on his head and potato sacks for clothes, and wherever he went in the Midwest, he threw around apple seeds. Okay, we heard about this guy, this tall tale and hero, in grade school in Illinois every fall because we would celebrate the apple harvest. Thank you. See? Allie knows. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm about to show. Juby always makes fun of me because I say the word apple like I'm from the Midwest with this ah sound. I'm about to prove that the way I say it is the correct way because (laughs) I am related to Johnny Appleseed. Now see, all right, all of my teachers in school would always say, oh, isn't that cute, honey? He's not a fake person. He's a real person, okay? (laughs) I mean, I, I didn't get a chance to call my mom and ask for the family tree, but just trust me on this. His name was John Chapman. His sister and brother are Nathaniel and Sarah Chapman. It's all there on my mom's side of the family. I did a little research to prove this all to you. I googled a bit, uh, and I found out from the Smithsonian, mind you, that John Chapman was also nicknamed the um, father of the American apple orchard, okay? He planted thousands of acres of apple trees throughout the Midwest, throughout his lifetime. And also, his work kind of resembled that of a missionary, because wherever he went, he always took his Bible. So people knew him as this quirky, eccentric man of God. And I think that this is hilarious, because here we are, right? We're studying the book of Ruth. We're talking about heritage, genealogies. You know, I'm sitting here uh, thinking about how Ruth is a folktale for the Jewish people, and how they even they read her story at the time of the barley harvest every year. And I can't help but wonder, you know, how do the ghosts of our ancestors kind of play a part in who we end up becoming? Because here's the kicker. My family planted 500 apple trees a few years ago uh, on the farm that we inherited from my dad's side of the family. And so I am now an apple heiress, as I like to say. (laughs) I don't know what I'm going to do with 500 apple trees someday in the middle of Illinois. But um, that's the case. And Johnny Appleseed didn't have anything to do with that, really, not directly anyway, but isn't it funny how it all kind of comes together? And this, this fall is going to be our first season where it's going to be open to the public. So, you know, I can't help but think about how our heritage plays a part of who we end up becoming, right? And so maybe for you guys, as you're sitting here thinking about those stories we shared with each other a few minutes ago, maybe the truth is that you have a heritage that maybe you're not so proud of. Maybe you've got some ancestors who are criminals or, um, I don't know, who are just liars or cheaters or addicts or something, and you kind of want to let go of some of that history, right? Or maybe you have ancestors who suffered really deep oppression or war or tragedy, and you only wish that you knew the culture and the customs that you're descended from. I mean, how would it change your story if you knew that your tendency to worry all the time came from the fact that your great-great-grandfather was the town drunk? Or that those wrinkles in your forehead that you hate every time you look in the mirror, that they make you look just like your great-great-aunt who was a leader in the Underground Railroad? I don't know. What is it that you know from your family line or even just from the family you grew up with that you want to reject and put away? What is it that you kind of want to embrace because maybe it's been redeemed. Well, throughout Lent, we have been studying the book of Ruth, and in case this is your uh, first week with us, I'm sorry, but 
spoiler alert, Ruth gets the guy in the end and lives happily ever after. <laughs> That's it. That's the whole story. Um, it's really easy to summarize it this way, right? To make this into some sort of like Jewish Harlequin romance novel that's embarrassing to read with like this Fabio-looking Boaz on the cover and Ruth staring up at him adoringly. It, it's easy to just call it this guy, girl-gets-guy kind of story. But if we reduce Ruth to just that then we are really missing out. And I hope by now, for those of you who have been following us, you're kind of starting to get that, right? The book of Ruth is for people so much more than just people who are looking for a soulmate. The book of Ruth is for people who are questioning their Mara, their dark spots, and and asking if God is present in their pain. The book of Ruth is for people who are doing well in life, who maybe have some influence or power in their communities, and they need to be encouraged to uh, look towards the Mara of others to offer grace when and where they can. The book of Ruth is for people who need to take some risks, to step out of their comfort zones, to maybe find God in ways that they normally wouldn't, or to learn to live unconditionally, to, sorry, to love unconditionally, and to, to embrace unconditional love in their own lives. That pretty much covers all of us, right? I think over the past few weeks as I've been having these conversations with my small group, with others in our community, diving deeper into scripture, remembering how many layers there are to every bit of text, the same question kind of keeps resurfacing. What defines us? How do I define myself amongst these stories, these stories of the family of God or my own family's stories, for example? How do I learn something about my character from studying the characters of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. I mean, take Ruth, for example. We've established she is a poor, broken woman, widow, right? In this uh, culture, she's a foreigner, where this culture rejects foreigners. And most of all, she's a woman who um, doesn't have a child yet. And the number one most important thing that a woman in the culture of Israel could do is to produce a son, an heir, to carry on the family line. So she's marked by that failure as well. We tend to reduce people to their their roles, right? Their accomplishments or failures. We do this still. Mother, son, teacher, lawyer. New York City does this to us as well. You're a struggling actor. You're an unemployed failure, a wealthy stockbroker. But our roles are not what defines us, right? We're told that. We get that. We hear that. Sure. What does define us then? being marked by God, being a child of God, being a member of his family. We hear that too, but do you guys really believe that? Do you, do you feel that? Does it shape your life? Does it change how you go about your daily life to know that? I have a friend who confessed recently that um, she thought that as she started leaning into her faith more, she thought that she would start to become more like, holy, more perfect, or her life would kind of start to be more altogether. And she's disappointed because she had this vision of faith that wasn't lining up and she was finding that it was kind of just the opposite. The more she leaned into scripture and into prayer, the more questions she had. The more she saw her own brokenness and sin and dark spots. And it was frustrating, right? And I think she's finding out what most of us have found out at one point or another, that living a life of faith is a whole lot harder than we might have thought. But the good news is, especially in these little stories, these family stories throughout the Old Testament, the good news is that God has never waited to use a perfect, altogether life. 
If you start looking for a checklist on how to be the perfect Christian, a blueprint to a life of faith, then you're going to be disappointed because it doesn't exist. And if we look at this genealogy, we just see this mess of imperfect, ordinary, broken, and bold people. And yet this is the family tree that brings us the birth of Jesus Christ. Which brings us to this list of names. Okay, Our text today, it starts out with a happy ending. You got Ruth and Boaz. They're married. They have a son, Obed. He redeems the family line, right? And Naomi, who starts the story out so empty, she is now full. Her family not only survives, it thrives, and thus all these names. But why does this list of names matter? Why are we focusing in on this boring part of scripture, right? It's just a list of names. Well, last week, Jonathan started this conversation by talking to us about uh, Abraham and Lot and the year of Jubilee. He talked about property rights and family inheritance. And that's one of the biggest reasons um, that these genealogies matter, why this family heritage matters in the culture of Israel. When the Jews settled in Israel, the tribes were given portions of the land as an inheritance. And then these portions were divided up among the families. So every 50 years or so, a dispossessed family could lay claim to a parcel of land which their ancestors had received. So this was really important that you knew who your ancestors were, what tribe you belonged to, what um, family you were a part of. And Ruth was marrying into the tribe of Judah, which we'll get to in just a moment. If you didn't know what your heritage was, then you were going to be treated like a dispossessed foreigner. And we've already established being a foreigner is not a good thing, right? So you really want to keep track of your family line. And Ruth's family line, it matters even more because as we see in these ten little lines, it leans down to a king, to King David. So this stuff's important. And in fact, we see the same family line in another part of the Bible that's written about a thousand years later in the Gospel of Matthew. Okay, Chapter 1, Matthew starts out, These are the ancestors of Jesus Christ. Bam, he's laying it out there. A descendant of King David and of Abraham. Okay, getting straight to the point, right? The reason why we're looking at these names is because they are the ancestors of Jesus Christ. Specifically, let's check out verses 3 through 6 in Matthew. We see Perez, right? And the other names that are mentioned in the passage of Ruth. And then Tamar is mentioned. Who's Tamar? Her name made an appearance in our story last week. We kind of glossed over it. But let's go back and talk about that. Because in Ruth, Boaz's friends say to him, May the descendants the Lord will give you from this young woman, Ruth, be as numerous and honorable as those of our ancestors, Perez, the son of Tamar, and Judah. So why is, Judah, or why is Tamar getting this shout-out? Honestly, it's not a pretty story, so stay with me on this, okay? Remember we talked about putting your Western biases aside? you really got to do that with Tamar. It's not, it's not a pretty one. You find the story of Tamar in the book of Genesis, okay, in chapter 38. And as we've established already, for a woman in the culture of Israel, safety, security, children, husband, all very important things, okay? Tamar marries into the, the family line of Judah, she marries one of Judah's sons. But unfortunately, he dies before she's able to produce a son. So here she is, a childless widow. Sound familiar? Now we know that the custom, the law under God's uh, law, was that another family member would help Tamar to conceive a son. And so in this case, that family member became her brother-in-law. And unfortunately for Tamar, her brother-in-law was a real jerk. Okay, he was selfish, and he knew what the laws were. He knew what the custom was. And so on the wedding night, though, because he's a selfish guy, um, he, uh, let's say, spilled his seed, okay, which is uh, 
dishonorable way of saying he uh, practiced a not very effective, usually, form of birth control. The point is, he, he did not do right by Tamar. Let's, let's say that, okay? And Tamar knew it, and God knew it, and so the jerk dies. Because it's the Old Testament, okay? So, so speeding through that... <laughs> So uh, Tamar then goes to Judah, right, the head of the family, and she appeals to him and says, give me another son or marry me yourself, take care of me, do what's right under the law, and he rejects her. He's a selfish guy too, okay? So now what's she supposed to do? Here she is, a widow on her own. Tamar's a strong woman, though, and she decides to take some risks of her own. So Tamar dresses up as a prostitute. Now again, lay aside your Western biases about prostitution. Maybe there's a little more going on here than we... we fully understand from our Western perspective. But she dresses up as a prostitute, and she tricks her father-in-law, Judah, into spending the night with her. Okay, And as payment, she asks for his staff and his seal, which are kind of like a family crest. Okay, Now you know where the story is going. What happens a few months later? Tamar's pregnant. That's right. She's starting to show, and Judah is, is... Wondering what's going on, because Tamar was supposed to be off being a widow, doing whatever it is that widows do, bake or knit, I don't know, whatever. But she clearly wasn't doing just that, and so he's mad. Because whoever this baby is, whoever this father is, it's going to take away some of his wealth and some of his family inheritance, right? So he decides that she needs to be punished. She needs to be put to death, burned to death, mind you. Well... As we know, this was a really risky thing for Tamar to do. These were some really risky choices she was making. I mean, this is right up there with Ruth on the threshing room floor. But she was doing what she knew was right under God's law, right? She effectively was saying, you will not push me aside. This is what's owed to me. This is what's right. You will do the the honorable thing. And so right before her punishment can be carried out, she pulls out that staff and that seal, kind of one of those, like, drop the mic kind of moments, right? And she says, whoever is the owner of these things is the father of my baby. And I just imagine there's a hush among the crowd, because they all know it's Judah. And Judah finally does the thing that's right, maybe because he was ashamed or embarrassed, maybe he was actually convicted, I don't know. But he marries Tamar, they produce a son, his name is Perez, so on and so forth. You get it now, right? How does the world define Tamar? The widow, the barren one childless, but God saw her character. God used her to establish a family line that would go on to change the course of history. This is why those friends of Boaz are praising Tamar, because she's become one of the mothers of the Jewish people. She's, she's a, a strong woman of character. So let's keep moving through the, the genealogy. If we keep going, we find Boaz, and yes, that is our Boaz. And who is attributed as one of Boaz's mothers? Well, and this could be like a, a grandmother, a great-grandmother, something like that. It's Rahab. If you guys were here with us during Lent last year, Allie remembers, we studied Rahab. Uh, we talked about her story. Well, here's what you need to know. Uh, Rahab always has a qualifier listed with her name, okay? It's Rahab the prostitute, which is really unfortunate. I mean, thousands of years later, and this woman's still called Rahab the prostitute. That's like being Bob the ex-con or Rachel the divorcee for all of history. <laughs> Rahab was also a Canaanite, so she was a part of a people group that were enemies of the Israelite people. 
But she seemed to be spiritually asking questions. She had heard about this God of Israel. She had heard about the amazing things he did to lead his people out of Egypt. And and God was in her heart for 40 years. He was somewhere in her heart. And so one day when two Israelite spies show up at her house, and yes, by house I do mean brothel. She was a successful prostitute. Um, She decides to hide them rather than turning them over to the authorities. So she's not only a great prostitute, but she's a great liar, too. This is not a woman that you think would be um, applauded as a role model in the church, right? But in Hebrews 11, the earliest churches mention Rahab. She's listed among some of the greats. It says there, by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. A prostitute and a liar. Rahab chose to align her life with God at a time when it meant risking everything. Her past did not determine her future. The world saw Rahab the prostitute. God saw a woman of great character and courage who would risk it all when he needed her most. So it's interesting who makes up this family, right? It's Tamar, the childless widow, Rahab the prostitute, Ruth the foreigner, Yet these, are, these brutal definitions are not where these stories end. In fact, for Ruth, even those definitions, those labels that are used against her, they change, they evolve as her story goes on. At the beginning, Ruth is speaking to Boaz and says, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? So in Hebrew, that word is nokri, foreigner. It, this word has no good connotations, okay? It's a demeaning word. It's a word that separates. It's stranger, foreigner. Uh, it's, it's a word that says, I'm an insider, and you're an outsider. You're no Cree. We have words like this in our culture today, right? Words that separate, liberal, conservative, immigrant. Uh, it was shocking to see that video of some of the students in that fraternity at the University of Oklahoma using a word that actually denigrates a whole people group just based on the color of their skin, right? We are a long way from Dr. King's dream of um, not having our children be, um, not having our children be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. In case we don't get the degree to which Ruth is an outsider, I'll remind you that the word Moab, Moabite, Moabites is used 13 times in this short book. Okay, Ruth is well aware of her lowly position in this culture. But things start to look up for her in the next chapter. When she approaches Boaz, boldly asking him to marry her, the word changes. No longer is it foreigner, outsider, but it's I am your servant, Ruth. And that word is Mawa, Alma, sorry, Alma. Now, this word has more possibility, okay? This is a word that means maidservant or female slave, but still, this is a word that means she's of um, marriage potential. She could actually be married at this point. And right after that, Boaz calls her Eshet Hail, okay? That means woman of valor. This word, this is a word that means so much. It's no longer that she's an outsider of lowly position, but a woman of valor. He recognizes her character. This is, this is uh, him saying to her, your reputation has preceded you. I've heard about how you love Naomi. I've heard about how you love the God of Israel. You are a shet hail, a woman of valor. 
This is the only place in the Bible where eshet hayil is used to describe a specific woman. It's used in one other spot in Proverbs 31 to describe the ultimate woman, an eshet hayil who can find for her worth is far above jewels, right? Which, by the way, this is a phrase that Jewish men use to praise their women, their wives, not to hold them to some unexpected standard that you might have heard about, but to praise them, to say that to be a Man or woman of valor is to be a person of God, to be a person who should be praised. And amazingly, Boaz calls Ruth Eshet Hayil before she's even done her thing, while she's still broke, destitute, poor, motherless widow. And yet he says to her and to us, this is a woman whose heart is beyond value. And that is what Hesed looks like, to love someone even before they've done their thing. To love someone simply because of who they are and because of their character. Ruth, a woman who doesn't let her failures or her roles in life define her, but who risks it all to marry into this broken, messed up family that God will use to redeem us all. You see, to be called valorous before you've even done your thing, that's the gospel. To be loved as you are at the very beginning of your faith before you've even done anything, that, that's the gospel. That's Hesed. That's unconditional love. And if you still struggle to believe that you are loved like that, then look to Jesus. Look to the cross. The man, the son of David, the Savior, who will once again hang on the cross, die, be buried, and raised again, all so that you know that you are loved and that there is nothing you can do to ever break that love. Which brings us to David. Why David? What's the big hype about David? All these lines of genealogy to get us to David, right? David's got a lot of great stories, and I encourage you to read more about him. He started out his life as just this ordinary shepherd boy, and then he became one of the greatest kings Israel ever had. So it just goes to show that sometimes the plans God has for us are bigger than the plans we have for ourselves. David was... um, courageous and and trusted God in battle. He was victorious over so many of Israel's enemies. He was a good friend. He was a great poet. He wrote a lot of great psalms. But he was also not a perfect man. David committed adultery with Bathsheba, and when they failed to cover up her pregnancy, he had her husband killed. Okay, He was really not a perfect man. And still, we learn from David that while people look on outward appearances, God looks on the heart. God saw how much David loved him. He saw what his character was, that he loved him deeply throughout his life, despite the ups and downs of his sins and his victories and his battles. This is a man that God calls a man after my own heart. It goes to show that the best thing that we can do as men and women of God is to live from that internal place where we realize that we are loved not because of who we are, what family we come from, not because of how religious we are or how well we behave, but because of God's unconditional love and grace for us, because of said. And the truth is, it's, it's my brokenness, my sins, my failures. That's what qualifies me for this. It's because of that sin and brokenness that Christ hung on the cross. It's because of that in me, in you, in all of us, that he, he gave up his life to redeem us all. And it's only in exercising the discipline to live from that place, that, that unbreakable space of unconditional love, that that's when we start to realize that's what character looks like living from a place in your life where you are grateful and generous because of this love. This is when you start to see the fruits of the Spirit 
forgiveness, kindness, love, grace, all of these things. This is when people start to realize, Shetayil, you are a person of character, a man or woman of God. At our equip course a couple of weeks ago, the rabbi Daniel Bronstein talked about the significance of this choice that Ruth made to, um, to say yes to the God of Israel, to leave her Moabite culture and the multiple gods there. And she, that was a choice that she made and continued to make with each one of her actions throughout this story, right? And it goes to show, as we look at this family that comes from that, Ruth the Moabite, Rahab the prostitute, Tamar the childless widow, David the shepherd boy, it goes to show that the kingdom of God is not bounded. It is not uh, closed off based on race or culture or social status. God calls men and women of courage and valor from all places, all races, all social statuses and, and failures and successes in life. It goes to show that we are not defined by our accomplishments or our failures. Our roles are not what defines us. You know, me being a wife, a pastor, a, a mother, these are not my highest calling. My highest calling is to be a follower of Christ. My highest calling is to be the kind of person who, whose character allows others to catch a glimpse of Christ through me. But that's easier said than done, right? I mean, developing character, ugh, it's a whole lot harder than, than just sitting up here and talking about it. <laughs> so I was talking to a friend, uh, she's 25, and she was saying, like, how, how do I do this? I have all these questions about my life. She doesn't know what she values yet. She's still figuring it all out. It's frustrating, right? It's really frustrating sometimes. It would be so much nicer if the Bible was just a checklist or a blueprint. If we were just told, this is what you should do, this is what you should believe, bam, you're a good Christian, right? But that's not how it works. The Bible is not a blueprint. The Bible is stories, filled with stories that are conversation starters, not conversation enders. And that's because we are supposed to be in conversation with each other. We were created to be relational beings with ourselves, with our God, with each other. We were created to, to have these questions and to have these conversations, to um, participate in this centuries-old dynamic conversation of the church where we get to go to small groups and lean into theological conversations and worship together on Sunday mornings, all because this is how God created us, to be in community together, right? So if you're sitting here wondering, you know, how do I do this? How do I develop character? Uh, so much harder than I, than I would like for it to be. Well, what have we been talking about these last four weeks all together? We've talked about looking at your pain, asking the hard questions about that. We've talked about developing compassion, noticing others. We've talked about taking risks to seek out what's good and right in this world. These are all steps towards developing strong character. And if you still have trouble figuring out what is good and right and what is my path, then look to Jesus. Look to God in human form. Learn more about him. If your highest calling is to be a follower of Christ, then get to know Christ. Find out who it is that he loved. Learn what he valued. Learn how he talked to people. And slowly but surely, you will start to value and take on some of those things too. This is why we always say, ask hard questions. It's better to ask good questions than it is to have right answers. Being told what to do and think and believe, that doesn't get you much of anywhere. But developing questions and examining yourself, that's how you start to develop a relationship with Christ. That's how you start to realize who it is that he's created you to be. Not just a clone of him, but this unique, diverse individual that he's created you and is calling you to be. 
So I can think of no better way for us to end our series, our Lenten series, than to have baby dedications today. You know, this is a beautiful opportunity for us to remember our own families, our heritage, where we come from, where we're going, how these stories will affect us, and how these stories of the Bible will affect these babies that stood on stage today, you know? Not all of them can be apple heiresses too, but... (laughs) But each one of them and each one of us has the opportunity to be a glimpse of God to other people, to be the kind of person who, to be a woman or even a man of valor and great strong character in the kingdom of God. These babies remind us that the story is still being written in you and me and each one of the image-bearing little creatures that we bring into this world. And so what will it look like for you to follow your calling? What will it be like for you to step into this family? How will you embrace community? How will you live into the story that God is still writing in this world? Should we pray about it? Father, you are tough. It's really hard to follow you sometimes. You call us to be brave to take big risks, to be uncomfortable, uncool. Sometimes it's scary and hard and exhausting, but help us to believe that it's worth it. Help us to truly believe that it's all worth it, that you are worth it. Help us to start our week believing that a little bit more. Fill us with an overwhelming sense of peace, that you are driving our stories, that you are molding our character towards something that is bigger and better than ourselves. Help us to believe that it's all worth it. And as we look to the cross, as we prepare for Holy Week, humble us, Father, and remind us of what you've already done, of the Son who died so that we might have life. And bring us back to the cross, to our Lord Jesus Christ, who reigns forever and ever. Amen.